Welcome to the Attachment Nerdcast, the podcast that takes you on a journey into the science and art of parenting. We're here to explore thought-provoking ideas, heartwarming stories, and researched fact strategy to help you deepen the bonds with the people who matter most in your life. In today's episode, we explore how to help our children navigate the complicated emotions of loss. This episode is filled with insights and strategies that will empower you to support your child when they need it the most. I'm going to touch today on a whole spectrum of how we think about loss. And I want to get your brains kind of in a framework around what is loss and what's, what is loss from a meaning perspective, but also what is loss in our bodies. So that when your kids are going through loss, whether it's little loss or big loss, you have a framework for it. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I help and support them through this process. This is my own definition. I say loss is the experience of pain that ensues when reality or expectations negatively change without one's control. This is obviously a little bit of an abstract idea, but I wanted to kind of pin it down um, because I think in general, as a culture, we talk about loss um, based on what we perceive as a valid uh, level or status of pain. So loss is definitely death. Right? If somebody dies, that's a loss. I think most people would argue that divorce would be a loss. Um, but I think that we all encounter loss all day, all day long, every day to some degree. And what we do with that loss, how it affects us, how we make meaning out of it, that is very variant. Um, so loss comes in both lowercase and uppercase forms. I'm going to talk a lot about from a kid's perspective today, but I hope you'll also just use this opportunity to be gentle to yourself as you reconstruct how you think about loss. So a lowercase loss would be, you know, it's bedtime and your kid is three and a half and their concept of time is not. And so they get it in their head. They want a popsicle. This happens to me a lot where it's like we're watching a TV show or a movie and we're snuggling and it's like, we're getting close to winding down and then like on the show the character is eating an ice cream cone and I'm like oh here we go right and my the excitement and the joy of watching someone else eat an ice cream cone or a popsicle makes my children want one right and so now there's this this childlike expectation of of having that right and then they bring that to me and they look up at me and they're like mommy can I have a popsicle and I look down and I say I'm sorry pal no popsicles right before bed because it's got a lot of sugar and we need to let our bodies rest and that makes our bodies too full of energy, you know, whatever the thing is you're saying no to that, that hope they had that expectation of that delight of eating a popsicle is now gone, right? It's been lost. Um, one of the harder things for um, my son who's so extroverted is plans. So expecting to have social time and then that not working out that person can't come they're sick they're not going to be here um as parents sometimes we dismiss this type of loss because in part it's just a lot to be a parent <laughs> and all of the emotions and all of the needs all the time and so we kind of go oh you're fine this is not a big deal let's not overreact right but that actually teaches our children to ignore this body state and so i want you all to begin to see lowercase loss as an opportunity for helping our kids learn how to navigate uppercase loss. So uppercase, so these moments are opportunities for cultivating your relationship and for helping your child learn to attune to their emotional cues and needs. I'm going to give you a 
metaphor, or not a metaphor, an acronym, which is literally right on my screen. It's funny that my brain couldn't just do that. An acronym for how I conceptualize the process from the beginning of this emotion starting to the end of the emotion taking a rest. And I'm going to say taking a rest and not ending because loss is a process. And some losses, some little case losses do really end, right? They have a beginning and the end, but some loss, like the loss of somebody in your life or the loss of a career or the loss of a community, that loss goes on and on and on and you just learn to cope with it. So calm is how we're going to work with it. C, we're going to contain their initial reaction by creating safety. Sometimes that means leaving the room or the situation or removing objects or simply um, it's done by putting your body in proximity to them so they know that you're safe. So I use the word containment to describe several different things. It, for this purpose, when we think tiny children and loss, there are often reactions that that create harm. You know, So we're going to contain via creating safety. Um, with kids that are bigger, with our other loved ones, containing is, is holding the space, right? So I am going to contain my own reaction. I'm going to work on keeping myself from dismissing, from overreacting, from underreacting. It's like we are going to sort of create a bubble around me and whoever is feeling this loss. And it's going to be a safety bubble. And we're going to make it emotionally safe to feel all those feelings. And we're going to make it physically safe so that nobody gets hurt. And then we're going to attune. So attunement is the process by which we allow our bodies to be receptive to the feelings of somebody else. So we're making an empathetic connection. We're responding to their level of pain. And we're going to stay here for as long as is needed for the loss emotion to go up, peak, and come down. couple of things to note. When we attune, we often see an increase of emotional expression on the part of the people that we are attuning to. So your child, you you maybe they've dropped their ice cream cone. So let's let's pretend that they've gotten an ice cream cone and they're so excited at their zoo and they're licking and they're licking and they turn around and they bonk a tree and boop, that ice cream is now on the ground, right? And they look at their ice cream cone and they look at you, they look at their ice cream cone and they look at you. A tuning is going to be looking back at them and saying, oh no, you lost your ice cream cone. Are you sad? And when you do that, your child is likely going to go, <laughs> they're going to increase their response to it because you've given them permission to feel this thing they are feeling, right? Um, with a ch slightly older child, you can look at them and say like, ooh, but our dude, how you doing? How's that feeling? Big, small, big deal, little deal? You know, you can give them an opportunity to go, you know what, it's fine. Um, I did this earlier, my son was, running in to grab his swimsuit and he wanted a very specific swimsuit and I said to him I don't actually know where it is and you don't have time to get that one as and I looked at him and I could see that he was sort of like oh because he's really into like his swim team swimsuits now because they're like cool because they're like tight like all the swimsuits are in those suits so he's like having this moment of what he expected which is to wear this particular new suit and what was actually happening which is I packed his other suit it was in the car and ready for him and I looked at him and I was like what do you think? Do you think this one is, a, you know, something you can work with? And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, I can work with it. I was like, okay, see you later. Right. So attuning doesn't necessarily mean we're trying to get our children to feel something bigger. It means we're responding to what we can already tell their body is experiencing. And we are offering empathy so that they can feel connected as they process through this. Pain. 
And that can take, depending on your child's developmental stage, depending on their neurotype, depending on the actual level of loss, is this a lowercase loss or an uppercase loss, which we'll talk about uppercase in a minute. Um, that attune process can take, oh, and how tired they are and how hungry they are. It could take two minutes. It could take 20 minutes. It could take two hours sometimes. I hate to be the breaker of bad news, but sometimes, especially during toddlerhood and teenagehood, those emotions go up and they crest and they keep cresting and cresting and cresting and cresting and it takes them longer to come back down. Um, but so you're going to be looking for the cues in your child that they are starting to death, that their neurochemistry is shifting from shooting out adrenaline or painful neurochemicals to shifting uh, to sending out GABA to sending out calming neurochemicals that they are starting to get their downstairs brain offline and their upstairs brain online, right? They're thinking again. They're able to be receptive. If you are finding this helpful and informative, I want to ask a favor of you. Please go to wherever it is that you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. And if you have the time, leave a review so that we can let other people know about what we're doing here and you can help us spread our messages. When we are in this attuning period, we are not trying to get them to stop feeling what they are feeling. That actually tends to work in the opposite direction. We are trying to help them feel permission to feel compassion from us in what they are feeling and a strong acceptance of what they are feeling, that they have this feeling that it means something. I usually have like a few words that I'm using very sparingly, like you're so sad, you're so upset, this is so disappointing. I nuance those words as my children get older, just naturally, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say to my eight year old, like, you're so, so sad. I'm probably going to be like, oh, that was such a disappointing experience because he knows that those words and he registers those words. So I'm helping him to have as large of a vocabulary as possible around his emotional world so that he can begin to communicate with nuance as he builds his other relationships with peers and then in the long run outside of my house. All right, so we've gone through that big attunement process, which I like to think of surfing. You're riding that wave. It's, the wave is going up and then the wave is going down and you're riding it as long as you need to until you hit the shore. And this is where you're no longer surfing the emotion. There's still, there's still emotion. Everybody's still a little wet from just what happened, right? We've got water in our hair, but there's a sense of, of the sun on our bodies, of the sand beneath our bodies. There's a steadiness that's occurred. Now is when we invite them to talk about what happened. And the reason that we do this is we want their brains to have a neural integration around this pain experience. So we want the feeling part of the brain that's still a little active and tingly to have access to the thinking processing part of their brain that had been offline during the big emotional surge. And we're doing this so that <clears throat> these two parts of the brain learn to co-regulate and communicate during times of emotion. In the long run, this is going to help their neocortex be thicker and it's going to help their amygdala be smaller. So they will be less reactive and more proactive in their ability to manage crisis and pain. So I'm going to say to a small child, like a very simple sentence, your ice cream cone dropped on the ground and it made you feel really sad and you cried, right? And I'm going to, I'm going to help them take on those words. Yeah, my ice cream cone dropped. And they might cry again a little bit, but they're probably not going to peak. I'm like, we're going to process the story and, and I'm going to help my child learn 
to talk about and talk about and talk about and talk about experiences of loss until they are processed. And the reason that we do this is that when loss does not get a space for storytelling, it curdles and it gets stuck in some level of shame, blame, confusion. And so the more somebody can talk about the loss and pain and suffering they're experiencing, the more connected they feel and the more resolved they feel and the more clarity they feel on what they do have control over. By talking about what we don't have control over, the ice cream fell on the ground, we can begin to problem solve what is it that we do have control over. So we're listening to them and we're staying receptive and we're understanding so that your child um, doesn't have to deal with um, your reactivity. So our goal is not to get to them, to shake them, to understand that like, you know what, kid, there's a lot more important things in life than ice cream. And if you're going to cry about ice cream, I don't know what you're going to do when something real happens in your life. Well, now we've just taught them that they're supposed to ignore their pain. And so that's a confusing message. After we've done this listening process, this is when we want to really melt in. And sometimes the listening and the melting kind of co-occurs. Um, but it's like you bring them in, you hold them, you make eye contact, you say, oh, I love you. I'm here. Man, when these things happen, they're hard. But we go through them together, don't we? We don't go through these things alone. Mama's here to hug you. Daddy's here to help you. Um, you're letting your calm body be a refuge for them as they complete the cycle of emotion um, until the next surge comes online, which the next surge is maybe another loss. It's maybe, you know, something else that's happening. Or in the case of uppercase loss, which we'll talk about, it's just the next surge of that reminder of loss getting activated in their bodies. Um, rinse and repeat, hopefully thousands and thousands of times throughout their childhood. Every time any of my children are having this response, I am coaching myself. I'm not doing it perfectly, but I am coaching myself. This is an opportunity to teach my children about their body states, about their emotions, give them vocabulary to represent those emotions to other people, give them a sense that relationship is a place where they can be soothed, held, understood, and begin to teach them tools for coping and perspective taking, right? So as my three-year-old drops their ice cream cone, that can feel like the end of the world. But when my eight-year-old drops his ice cream cone, he's usually able to adapt. He can look in the bottom of the cone and say, you know what, there's actually still plenty of ice cream in here. I was going to feel sick if I ate the whole thing anyway. Or, you know, he can look over at mine and be like, mom, can I have a scoop of yours? I'm like, sure, kid, you can have some of mine. And he can rationalize because he has been held so many other times that his brain is less reactive in loss. He doesn't anticipate being dismissed or humiliated or shamed or punished. He anticipates being understood and finding a pathway through. Uppercase loss. We are getting divorced and we won't be living in the same house anymore. That is a massive loss for kids. Somebody has died. An animal has died. A pet has died. These are the things we stereotypically think of as loss. And what I want you to imagine is that in the case of the ice cream cone, it's an isolated incident. So there is some simplicity in, I had my ice cream, I wanted to eat it, it fell off, I lost it, my ice cream is done. Um, there's pain, there's processing, but there is some simplicity. In uppercase losses, there is unbelievable complexity, right? We are getting divorced and won't be living in the same house anymore. It's not simply, my parents are living in different houses. It is, I don't get to have this pair of shoes at this house. It is, I don't know where to find this ingredient in this house. I don't know how, you know, 
you, this parent will feel or react when they run into this parent at my baseball game, right? There's tentacles. Same with the loss of somebody in our lives. Like it's just, it's a million paper cuts all at once. Um, so to know about a child's reaction to uppercase loss, you guys, I'm going to move on my leather couch because my foot is falling asleep. I'm trying to move really slowly ah, because my microphone is so sensitive. Oh, well, everyone's going to hear it. There you go. In uppercase loss, the emotional waves are bigger, longer, and less predictable. So you're going to want to set your expectations as a parent of a child who is going through an uppercase loss that it's going to be far messier than it is with the ice cream cone. I'm going to talk about the way that loss affects the mind and the body of a child. So the first is mental confusion. Um, as grownups, we have perspective taking. We've lived some life. We've observed loss in other people's lives or in our own lives. Um, we're able to make a little bit more sense and meaning out of loss, although I would argue still not all the way. My experience of loss is that it's deeply disorienting um, and that it can create disorientation into your daily living, your daily pattern, your way of relating, your beliefs about yourself, your beliefs about the world, theological beliefs. I mean, it can really wreak havoc on everything. So children are also going to have that where you're going to see them looking just a little confused, disoriented, maybe not following processes in their life that you think are you know, common or simple, that it'll take them longer to grasp them or make sense of them. Um, You'll create deep swells of emotions. So sadness, anger, shame, guilt, and fear are all things that you're going to see swell up. And you are going to likely see those swell up um, in sideways situations, meaning they're not going to say to you, mom, dad, parent, I am currently feeling incredible shame that I have survived this situation and my friend did not. Um, they're going to just be full of the feeling and reacting from that feeling. And you're going to have to cue in to the fact that this is probably connected. There's an intensity to this emotion. It's coming up a lot or it's coming up in a way that doesn't quite make sense to me. It's probably related to the loss. Irritability and restlessness. Um, loss puts us on edge. It makes us um, vigilant. It makes us um, struggle to find rest, struggle to find a sense of hope. And in that, our neurochemistry and our adrenaline pumps a lot more. And so you're going to see your kids just be cranky and grouchy and have less generosity and um, towards each other, towards you, towards their peers. Um, I, I think about kind of the stereotype when we're watching a film of a, um, a widow who's just found out that her partner has been lost and that, that kind of like intense rage and response. Right. And then like, maybe there's a stereotype of them, like cleaning up the house constantly. Like, it's like the body is just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Like, this doesn't make sense. Life stopped making sense. Displacement is when we have a big swell of feelings that comes out in a situation that doesn't relate to it. So I talked about that a little bit before, but you'll see this a lot with children in loss. Um, they are going through the loss and you ask them about it and they show no emotion. And there's like, you can't really tell your are they having a hard time with it? And then something else happens, you know, they, they stub their toe and, and it is like, you would 
you're almost convinced that their toe is broken, even though you can see their toe moving and you know it's not broken. But you're like, it has to be broken. They're responding so intensely to this. Well, they're probably actually responding so intensely to the loss. But because the loss is abstract and confusing, it comes out in this moment where there's pain they can identify and make sense of. Um, I also see a lot of kids go into hyperactivity. Um, it's uh, it's anxiousness. It's anxiety. They don't want to stop because stopping it feels sad. It feels heavy. It feels scary. It feels powerless. So they just keep moving and they get kind of silly and nice and honestly kind of annoying. And this is a real tricky thing to navigate because they're expressing their anxiety and they don't know what's happening. And you want to be able to respond with compassion, but also get underneath kind of what's going on and how like, okay, they're really struggling. They're really hyper. Okay, what do I know this means? I know. Thank you for listening to the Nerdcast. If you're hungry for more, be sure to check out this complete episode along with other member-only perks by joining us as a Nerd Herd member. Details can be found at attachmentnerd.com. Love on and hope to see you again soon.